Should I do the theme song? Yeah, I think we should. I think we should switch up the way we do the intro. Okay, so this is Systems Live. I'm Timothy Fitz. I'm Jeff Lindsay, and that's about as official as I can sound. That was the least impressive theme song. You just said words. Well, if we put it on loop and put like and and we get like a a beat to it, like like uh, like mid '90s Fat Boy Slim era, mm-hmm. just. Just four words looped forever. Yeah. 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 Okay. I can see that. I can see that. We'll use it in the next one. Um, I'm going to veto that. Oh. But I can I can understand it. Okay. So tell me, Timothy Fitz, um, we have a topic for this show. Yes. As usual. Um, what would that topic be? That was the least convincing we always have a topic sentence. So we're talking about idealized design. And that's, that's, that's capital I, capital D. This is, this is not just uh, two words slapped together. This is a specific process that was advocated first by Russell, our, our boy. Russell Acoff. Russell Acoff. Oh, I love that guy. Um, He's not around anymore, but he was very cool. It's, it's, yeah, he's not around anymore, which is really sad. Um, but what's even more sad is that when we first found out about him, we both thought he was dead. Um, I knew he was alive. You thought he was dead. I, okay. Okay. So idealized design. Um, actually, because his thing, he writes a lot about systems thinking. Uh, it's sort of, he has, you know, his, his brand of systems thinking. It's actually a big influence on our brand of systems thinking. And one of the things that he, I, I like idealized design because it kind of touches on a lot of systems stuff as well as design thinking stuff. Uh, interestingly, um, so uh, I use it in most of the projects. I use it kind of implicitly. It's sort of the way I think. We were talking about this earlier. I don't really think about problems as much as an ideal that I want, um, which is interesting, but. Uh, idealized design is is an explicit process that you can kind of uh, employ to sort of uh, uh, well either why would you why would you apply idealized design? Well, let's jump really quickly to what it is and then and then work from there. So, idealized design is a I mean, at the end of the day, it's basically a brainstorming process. It's how you figure out the ideal end goal of the system you want to build. Um, and it separates. It sort of it sort of pulls apart two really competing interests. One is what do we want to have, and then the other is how can we get there from here. And so idealized design says, forget about how can we get there from here, and figure out where you want to go. Because like don't don't let uh, you know your minute steering decisions affect the ultimate uh, end destination on your, your road trip. Like that, that just I actually, when I started learning how to drive, I think one of the first things that I did was look at the road right in front of me and try and drive like that, which you can't do. Um, you have to kind of look straight out. Everybody does this now, and it probably seems silly to, to say that you do otherwise. But when you're just starting or like, you know, uh, that's kind of what I did. And it was not a very effective way to drive. Yeah, well, I mean, when you're just starting to drive, you're like, how can people do this? You have to look at 19 things at the same time, and if you screw up, the consequences are huge. And then within a few years, you can do this thing where you you teleport from one place to another, and you don't remember what was happening on that commute at all. 
like it it it, it just fades into the background. Um, and so idealized design is is teasing apart those two different issues. Um, Acop describes it uh, as planning planning for the future where you pretend that and he says this concretely like last night our company was destroyed like literally everyone is gone the product is gone it doesn't exist the environment is the same everything outside of the company still exists all of the harsh realities of the environment exist but none of the pretense none of the attrition none of the build up thinking exists okay now what would you do um, and in sort of that way, it's like, okay, you're an established player. How do you think like a, a, a startup again? How do you think like a scrappy, we have to, we have to make it from scratch and we'll, we'll build the right thing this time. We're not going to do the, the crappy thing. I mean, the important thing about that is trying to get yourself to stop thinking relative to where you are and what you have. Because if you do that and you actually kind of force yourselves to imagine a world where whatever system was uh, destroyed, you have nothing to think about but what you want, which is the point of this exercise, is to actually focus on what you want as opposed to um, what problems you're trying to solve, what problems you have right now, most of the time come from whatever existing you know process has gotten you there. Yeah, so why, why is this so different? Why is this better? Mm. Um, what one answer I see is like I see I see a class of mistakes where people um, they forget what the ideal is and they only see the next action and and they they basically apply a greedy algorithm they do whatever is easiest to do next and their their what's easy and what's cheap and what's effective function is only looking ahead sort of one step and with idealized design you say no 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 we want to know where we're going to be five or ten years from now. We want to know what we could be if we rebuilt the company from scratch. A lot of people might say, well, there's no way you would know what that would be. And it's true. Like that, the, the thing is, is it's not, uh, it's not really uh, uh, trying to predict the future. It's really you imagining what you want. That's all it is. Um, you know, It's sort of like the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Your invention is a matter of... Uh, you know, willing something of desire into existence. So, I mean, this is really just um, helping you think about what you what you really want. Um, so, uh, yeah. So the environment. So the organization is destroyed. The environment stays the same, and from there, um, you can replace it with any organization you want. So long as it's subject to two constraints, this is this is Acoff's terms: technological feasibility and operational viability. So basically, can it actually be done? Not yeah, it, not it, can we get there from here, but can it actually be done? Is it is it practically possible? Like if you if you were just suddenly given uh, you know a hundred million dollars, if you're a hundred million dollar company, if you were suddenly given a hundred million dollars and you had to build a company from scratch to solve a problem. Could you do this? That's it. That's the whole litmus test. Right. That's that's where sort of your knowledge and experience so far comes into play because you actually that's you, what you need to know whether know whether something's possible or not. Yeah, it's a common mis. Like I, f- I feel like when I explain idealized design to people, they're like, "Oh, well, the ideal design would be something that solves this for free." Mm-hmm. I was like, "Well, okay, but is that is that a thing that could ever happen?" If yeah. the answer is like no, in the in the you know visible future, that's not possible. Then that's not an ideal design. That's like. A wishful thinking design, and those are very different. Mm-hmm. 
Although I like wishful, I use that term a lot, wishful engineering, wishful thinking, but yeah, I mean, sometimes it's useful. It helps, it helps you getting in that mindset, right? Yeah, sometimes it's useful to, to because sometimes you, your implicit biases of what the the viability of a project are is just, it's, it's too wrapped up in, well, we've been doing this and to go there would be such a huge change, so it's just not an option. Um, and maybe maybe it really is. Like at the end of the day, you might come back with an idealized redesign and go, oh, but to get there from here is just too expensive. Um, and that that's a good outcome. Like maybe it just says like, oh, that's a thing we'll, that this organization will never be able to do or won't be able to do for the next five years. Um, and then knowing that and knowing that like competitors who are doing that are going to eat your lunch is important. Yep. Um, you know, I think I think Netflix is a really interesting example um, where like their ideal design for Netflix was streaming video over the internet, but at the time that they started, it just wasn't practically possible. Um, and so they sort of like, and I don't know that they actually did the, the, the capital I, capital D idealized design process, but that's the sort of thinking that this process encourages. Um, so they use their CD business, or sorry, DVD subscription business to, to bootstrap their internet direct streaming, as everyone knows. It's such a common story, but... We actually applied uh, idealized design at Twilio, we got us to do that for our operations and, and platform group. Um, and that's where a lot of the ideas for Flynn came from, which is kind of an interesting thing, which is why I try and maintain that in the in the project is this idealized design. Because, um, I mean, in reality, if you want to apply it, it's something that you kind of have to have as an ongoing thing. Because what you want changes as you, you know, as, as time goes on, what you what you know about the problem and what you know that you want will, will change. And so revisiting uh, idealized design is kind of uh, an important thing. But I mean, just doing it once is kind of uh, a big, uh, something that most people don't even do. Let me go on a tangent real quick. Um, a really common term in technology is technical debt. And a lot of people use that term to mean sort of, uh, we made bad decisions and now we're stuck with the consequences. Um, but one of the interesting aspects of technical debt is there's there's a bunch of different ways you can get it. And one of them is by existing for a period of time. Because if you live with a code base, the mental model of how it should be, your, your like implicit internal ideal version of the code base is always changing. You can't not change that. That's just like being a human. Um, and so if you work in a code base for a while, you build up this sort of like, well, our new ideal is this new thing. And that's a form of technical debt. Because every time you go back to your code base, you have to think, well, what I really want is this, but what actually exists today is this other thing. Um, but that's not, a, that's not the sense that people use that word in very often, even though it was part of like the very original definition. Mm-hmm. There's, um, there's another, the, the way this, to me, the way this relates to uh, design thinking, I mean, it's called idealized design, um, is, I mean, one of the, one of the, uh, Principles of design is often, um, uh, you know, as opposed to just addressing problems, let's say what the customer says, what their problem is, um, that's really just a diagnosis. You know, the real problem is, you know, has some other root cause. Um, uh, so there's usually this translation of, you know, they say they want this, but what they mean is they want so-and-so, right? Right. Like the customer is always right, but they're usually wrong about it. Yeah. Um, and so helping them or, you know, in, in, in software development, um, the way I like to think about the value of design is, you know, this kind of overall holistic thing where 
uh, when you're when you're designing software, the, the the best software is software that meets the requirements and is as simple as possible for a lot of reasons for maintainability, understandability, um, all kinds of uh, benefits come from simplicity. And uh, a lot of the times, it's really hard to design simple systems. Um, and a lot of the time, it, it takes a while for you to actually understand the problem domain enough to sort of create that elegant solution or whatever. Um, and I think that's part of that when you when you realize what system that you want, um, you're usually imagining a, a simpler system because it's you know in your head and you can imagine it. So um, the reason why I like idealized design, continuous idealized design, you can call it, is that you're constantly trying to make the system simpler. Um, because in my ideal design, you have something simpler than what you have. Yeah, um, interesting anecdote from uh, Kent Beck. So Kent Beck runs, he does lots of teaching around TDD, or he used to. I don't, I don't know how much he does anymore. He, he does mostly like pairing with people at Facebook to teach them TDD instead. And he, he had this example, I think it was like playing cards in a deck or something like that, that he would TDD live on stage in front of people. So he did it like a hundred times. And what was interesting was every single time he learned something new about the domain and like he learned another way to model it that might be better, would have trade-offs. And um, that's just crazy to think like writing the same code a hundred times and ending up with a hundred subtly different versions that each have their own set of pros and cons and, and learning something about a project that you get to, to rewrite that way. Like I feel like artists have that. They have that like morning routine of I'm going to, I'm going to draw like a rough sketch and do a color study before I do anything for the rest of the day. But programmers don't, and technologists don't, and, and that's weird. Like, why don't we have that? Why don't we have the, the work our design muscle sort of warm-up exercise? Yeah, I, I mean, refactoring code is sort of an exercise in, in that, right? But, I mean, there's usually refactoring code is so much easier than refactoring arch- architecture, Right, um, and that's usually where you get the big benefits if you can make the overall system much simpler. Um, but there, there's usually very little of that. Um, it usually comes in the form of like rewrites or something, and you have this problem. There's a second system syndrome. Second problem. system, yeah, which is where you over-design the second system to mm-hmm. fix every single problem you saw in the first system, and you end up with an overcomplicated, expensive version that's actually a lot worse. Has a lot more problems, and and so that you know, I people make comparisons to to that when I when I talk about idealized design in the, in the realm of software, and I think that it's just a matter of implementing it wrong um, because you want to first of all, you don't want to, uh, well, it's kind of parallel to idealized design, um, but if you're doing a, a rewrite, these my my uh, parameters are, um, you want to try and uh, only only implement new features that were uh, specifically asked, but try and collapse as many features uh, into uh, less features. Because there's so many ways you can actually turn um, two features into one. Uh, that's sort of a, a, a little design trick. Um, and if you can do that, you can kind of you're simplifying the entire system by collapsing these things down. Where if you were to develop the thing organically, and these two feature requests come up, you actually build these two separate features. And it actually takes a, a, takes you to step back and sort of think about these two features or these two things that it does, and come up with a way to to do them, you know, as one feature or something that's more expressive 
find find some other way that it, that is able to kind of address both of those. Yeah, like it's really interesting to look at software boxes from like the the mid to late '90s with their literal bullet point lists of features on the back and and word processors and things like that from that era where. Like we didn't, we didn't really understand this for software. We weren't really hiring designers as a general field. That was very uncommon, and we ended up with just oh, people ask for X, let's add a button that does X. Repeat, and then you just see this like explosion. Part of it was with the web, where people were building much simpler things, but they could be combined together, and you sort of had emergence solve these problems instead of, um, and so and so we we just built like a, a different slice set how we solve these problems and we we end up with a lot better software that way and now i'm i'm sure like as we get new technologies and new um new places to write software we're going to make all the same mistakes again i, I think with software idealized design has a lot of it uh, you know its own I'm, it's kind of how we i've been applying it a lot but it was originally developed talking about organizations because it's really all just systems um and uh and so it's kind of interesting the 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 likes uh Particulars when when applying this to software because you already have things like refactoring and rewrites and stuff like that and that's very similar and things like technical debt and that's usually a lot of uh, implementation uh, detail you're usually trying to to work down implementation technical debt where at the where you know kind of what idealized design to me is is it's it's a redesign of the entire system so that's not just how it's implemented but what the feature set is and what the actual experience is the end user experience so that's everything that's um so that's actually going to um you know it's more than just a re-architecture it's actually you know if there's a product involved it's it's a reimagining of the product uh as well and so that sounds like an incredibly difficult thing to do right um and most people don't think it'd be worth it to do that. Um, the thing is, you're not actually implementing it. You're just talking about it. You're just brainstorming. And, and, and somehow even that's hard. Like, even even just the act of... It's, it's not impossible hard. Like, it just takes a lot of mental concentration. But it's... When you start to shake off those assumptions and the, those, like, concrete realities of your organization today or concrete realities of your solution today... It's, it's this weird, like, freeing, like, oh, I wasn't even, I didn't even realize that I was too focused on that. Mm-hmm. At Twilio, we just um, dedicated uh, some couple hours of every Friday to just um, get in a, in a room and, and talk about it. And we'd, like, basically we break down the system into subsystems and just, like, talk about our ideal version of the systems. And then constantly, you know, it's all theoretical, um, but to, to have that space to... Uh, explore and and brainstorm what you actually want um, is uh, people just don't realize how how great that feeling is to to actually know what you really want and to do it as a group too like I, I see that problem in open source a lot where you'll have really good communication policies around the code and how the code changes but really bad uh, communication policies over how the vision changes and like the the band of open source people contributing are often each has their own vision and is pulling in different directions um, and then at, at, at a company the t- typical bad problem is like the CEO or the product guy has the thing in their head and whatever you do has to be working in his vision or her, her vision and like you end up with just like whatever they want is sort of what you're trying to make whereas if you have these open conversations and everyone's sort of like collaborating together you end up with a shared ideal and as soon as you have that shared ideal 
then like you, you don't have any friction when you say, hey, can we do it this other way that's more expensive right now? But it's working in the direction of our ideals and not away from it. Mm-hmm. The other thing, though, is that, um, and again, it's all these implementation, and this is not very well documented. This is a process that I think ACOF is one of the only people that actually documented this process. Um, and so it'd be really great to actually try and, and um, you know, document a lot of the specifics of, of this process. But, um, for example, one pitfall uh, is if you have a bunch of people together and they're just brainstorming and you try and follow these requirements, you know, one requirement is is you don't talk about implementation as much. You talk about what are the properties of the system. Like you say, um, I want to be able to so-and-so, sort of user story-ish, but you know, you're very high level like, um, I would like a system where this is not possible. I mean, that's that's a high-level requirement. And really all this is is, is gathering requirements because it's kind of nice that Software World has this um, existing term terminology. Um, but you're kind of gathering requirements. And the thing is we, we've gathered requirements before when we start writing software, we gather requirements. But again, it comes back to if you're missing this concept of design, um, of, of understanding how to address multiple um, requirements with with one feature. If you're missing that, then you're kind of going to be losing some of the benefit of this process, and so that that requires some design thinking, um, which un- unfortunately isn't necessarily the strength of a lot of engineers. But um, so it, it might be useful if there is a design minded person uh, to have them involved in the in the discussion. Yeah, it's it's definitely really cross functional. Um, because your your requirements are going to come from every different aspect of creating, and your solutions and your your idealized design is going to come from every aspect as well. A lot of the, I mean, yeah, and 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 ultimately, uh, the entire system. I actually don't like this this concept of separating function and implementation. Um, and this is getting into sort of how I approach as as a design as a, di- a designer how I you know, think about this stuff when I'm doing idealized design. But to me, implementation and function functionality, if you were to separate those requirements and implementation, I don't like separating them. I actually do like to kind of drill down and kind of, and I like to say that this is a very kind of systemic or holistic way of, of doing things. But, um, you know, a lot of people are driven top down by the requirements. Okay, if we have these requirements, what implementation uh, will satisfy this requirement, but that's not enough. Um, for me, going and knowing uh, how something would be implemented can sometimes uh, lead me to come to conclusions on how to simplify um, simplify functionality or overall uh, implementation um, and trying to align, uh, get an overall simpler implementation by aligning the functionality and requirements with what's actually possible uh, implementation-wise. Um, and so that to, that's that's something that I do that helps create an overall simpler system, which is usually what I op, uh, optimize for. Um, Man, so many I've got, I've got so many ideas now. I'm trying to pick which one I want to talk about next. So so it was interesting that all the different terms you're using there: implementation and design and process and um, and what's like in the context of ACOF actually using idealized design he was going into big corporations to ceos and talking about product design um and there were technology limitations 
but for the most part, it was product design. However, like all these things map almost one to one to software design. Like so software design is very very similar to product design, and the idealized design just works perfectly for both. Mm-hmm. Um, so we use these like weird ambiguous terms sometimes because we've done idealized design in both of those contexts. Do you want to do you want to briefly talk about ThinkTub because that was a cool thing that happened. Yeah, so think to back um, a long time ago, I got really experimental with events and stuff like that. That's where Super Happy Dev House. That sounds like the hippiest sentence I've ever heard out of your mouth. It's, it's the day of, <laughs> I got experimental with my events. Uh, I mean, I, I, I liked uh, doing different. It was just interesting to get people together for, for different reasons. Um, and in different structures, things like bar camp, unconferences, is really just kind of an exploratory, like, oh, these are the different kinds of, like, structures, and it's interesting to see social patterns and stuff. Um, but one of the things that kind of emerged just from hanging out with certain people and talking about systems thinking and idealized design was an event that we ended up calling ThinkTub, which was we'd get together and we would actually just, um, uh, if I recall, we would kind of just come together and and at the first one, we were just talking about random stuff, and it kind of turned into uh, a brainstorming. But the, the the idea was to idealize design something. Um, and we did it, and then we had all this kind of process. Like, we did it actually with a collaborative, what was it, Sabitha Edit? Um, I attended a couple. and I, Yeah, I think it was Sabitha Edit, and then a projector so that everyone could, could sort of, like, sit around and talk about it without having to stare at their laptops and... Um, everyone like you could talk and other people would sort of group edit the notes in live yeah it was kind of an interesting it'd be kind of good to to document it because it's an interesting experiment in how you would um, do one of these kind of uh, idealized design sessions wasn't there like a a phrase like nothing Nothing unsaid nothing forgotten something like that yeah the idea that we just we want to stop repeating so we idealized design the process I think that's where that uh, some of that stuff came from we got we got meta that doesn't sound like us at all So one of the properties was if you're in uh, in this process of, of brainstorming, you don't want people to, to think of something and, and sort of not have a way to say it. If someone, someone's kind of talking about something and you have an idea, there should be a way for you to get that out there and share it. So one of the things that we kind of came up with iteratively was the fact that you, you could kind of write down something on this wiki that we were projecting on. It was really more of a, like a shared Google Doc or something. Um, that uh, they could write it down uh, without interrupting the person talking. One of the neat things was the person talking might see it and it might actually like influence it. But you know they were able to do it without interrupting, you know, explicitly or having to like interject or whatever. But then it comes, you know, it's then sort of like an agenda that you can after whatever you can look and see. Oh, that's a cool idea. Is this really weird? So we um, had the audacity to idealize redesign conversation. Is that? I think that's what happened. Oh, brainstorming, yeah. yeah I mean, Akoff had a lot of things to say about brainstorming process too, um, which makes sense as as an idealized design expert. Um, I'm trying to remember. He he said, um, uh, "You you." One of the most memorable things was you can't actually say something. First of all, there is no bad idea. Da, da, da. That's a pretty common thing in, in brainstorming. But uh, one useful thing that he had was instead of saying something is a bad idea, try and hold it. Um, uh, try and come. Up, try and think of a better idea instead of saying that's a bad idea, so that this your is, response is actually here's 
another thing to contribute as opposed to it's interesting because that's actually like the the like one and only rule of improv is like mm-hmm. no blocking yeah uh, all, yeah what is it uh um there's like yeah no blocking it's like always say yes or something like there's a bunch of different ways to but yeah i, I saw that parallel too in improv yeah I, I, brainstorming really is just improv at yeah. the end of the day um and improv is brainstorming, brainstorming. <laughs> Uh, yeah, except that stage improv is like brainstorming comedy, which is very weird to watch. <laughs> like, hopes that wasn't funny. Let's go in a different direction. So um, the other thing we had was nothing forgotten uh, in the think tubs, which was uh, helpful in that people were recording stuff on this wiki because after the event was over, you have basically this incredible sort of collective brain dump of the entire uh, session, uh, which was really useful a lot of people do this you know their equivalent is whiteboards and people will go up and do this with whiteboards um and then they'll take a picture after that seems like a the sort of like standard practice for these kinds of sessions in in the real world but um, we found that it was just kind of neat to do it with a projector and a collaborative text editor yeah the collaborative editing was nice because you didn't have to get up and walk over to the board and interrupt things and like standing up in front of a whiteboard sort of gives the attention to you and and so so be that we were using um, it was just way easier to throw a couple of words in, but not disre- like derail the conversation or really affect things. Um, what what do you do? You happen to recall uh, what some of the domains were that we did? I think we did education design. and transportation. Transportation. Yeah, both of those are pretty like big systemic problems. So it was kind of interesting to do idealized design on them. I don't remember transportation. I remember money, but you might not have been there. Yeah, I definitely wasn't at the first. We talked about, I think, finance uh, in the first one. Did you did you idealize design Bitcoin? <laughs> no, I mean, so that, I mean, that's it's kind of interesting because you don't necessarily touch, you know, all facets of, of something. But um, it's it's kind of interesting. We came up with this. Um, we started going this direction of of designing a new currency because that it, so it was kind of a new currency. But there were classes of currency. Uh, uh, based on uh, luxury or uh, staple, um, and there and designing um, a society that was um, based around those currencies. Like, what? How would you pay somebody in staple versus luxury, um, and then what those things could be used for, and how there would be uh, you know some friction in being able to exchange between those. Um, and so that was kind of an interesting thing to explore. Um, but it was interesting to just like explore that. It's only like I can imagine authors do this when they come up with, you know, the, you talk about like sci-fi influencing the future. A lot of people predicting, quote unquote, predicting the future. Um, really, they're just going through this process of idealized design or, or through some sort of like brainstorming of what would be cool if, right? Um, do you want to tell the? The Bell Labs story? Uh, yeah, I can do like a super short version yeah, of that. Before you get into that, so we, we uh, when we were talking about this podcast, we were talking about making it, we, we were joking about doing a drunk history style version called Systems Drinking. Um, and I feel like if you were to do an episode, this is the story you would tell. Like, this is the story that I think you've told the most and could tell the most of it while incredibly, incredibly drunk. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) 
But it is, it's definitely if there was one story that I would pick for systems drinking, this would be it. Um, yeah, and, and, and the way, because uh, this, this was, I'm, I'm retelling a story that, that Hickoff would tell. And um, he would tell things very elaborately and, and kind of go down into details that weren't terribly relevant. He saw tons of meaning in really specific details. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, so, so Akoff, he, he didn't, this was a, this is a, huh? I, I said Akoff. Uh, <laughs> Akoff, Akoff, um, he, uh, dis- he sort of stumbled upon this, this process by seeing it accidentally, um, done at Bell Labs, which Bell Labs is, is known for a lot of, I was just watching, um. The actually uh, Daniel sent me some hamming lectures. I've been tweeting about those earlier today, but he was a, he was a Bell Labs guy. Um, but uh, so so I'm trying to remember that I think this was like 1952. Um, and Ra- a- Akoff had he didn't work at, at Bell Labs, but he supposedly knew a friend who he was staying with a friend or visiting a friend, and his friend was called into this emergency meeting at Bell Labs um, by the, the vice president. And so he basically dragged him along to this to this mandatory meeting. And at this meeting, nobody knew what it was, what it was for, but you basically had uh, most, of the, most of the people in, at Bell Labs here, and they're just kind of waiting for this uh, vice president uh, dude to come in and, and tell him what was up. Finally, he comes in and he's like, you know, normally he's this kind of really happy kind of dude, and he comes in with his head down, and sort of almost intentionally very like um, t- to prove a point. You know, it's like, oh man, he comes up to the front and he says, uh, "Last night, the American telephone system was destroyed," and that was kind of a weird thing to say, and a lot of people. Uh, knew that it was not destroyed because they had they were you know made telephone calls uh, earlier. But then he says, and if you don't believe me, by noon you're going to be fired. And so then everybody started like freaking out. What the hell is going on? Um, and then he took a digression and and he 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 said, uh, so I was reading uh, Scientific American recently and it was talking about um, the our, our top. Uh, contributions to telephony, what Bell Labs have, had, had contributed, and he went down the the three things were um, the dial, uh, multiplexing, and uh, I think it was like coaxial cable or something. It allowed whatever. And he was what, what stunned him though was the fact that all of those things that came out of Bell Labs that were you know the the pinnacle of their achievement. Um, None of them had been invented in the lifetimes of anybody working there. Uh, so so he's like, what the hell have you guys been doing? And I love that bar. Like, <laughs> why haven't you made any of our greatest achievements yet? Yeah. I mean, you would think, though, that, right, you would continue on this, like, why, why is all this stuff, like, in the past? Um, what the problem was, uh, his, his solution, or the way Akoff explained it, uh, his interpretation of what he said was, uh, you've been improving the parts of the system, but you haven't improved the system one damn bit. This is a very systems thinking. You know, as you get to a certain size, you get to these departments, and when you get into departments and specializing, you start focusing on parts of the system, and nobody really steps back and thinks about, well, how can we improve this this overall system? 
And it, it's from that that you get like significant changes in the overall system, right? Or improvement overall. Um, so they basically went through this process of, of idealized design. He split everybody uh, into groups um, to kind of idealize or redesign their, their groups. And then they would come together and kind of share and do collaborative brainstorming, of, like press, show and tell. Here's what we came up with. And so um, uh, one of the groups was the, uh, the, the telephone, you know, because there's, there's like uh, long distance lines, a lot of the other things in the system. But, you know, one of the th- them is the actual device that you use for telephony. And uh, they basically were tasked with, let's idealize, redesign the telephone. And so they basically went down a list of properties that they'd like it to have, like no wrong numbers. A lot of these things have been have been solved, but they would kind of come up with a requirement and, and then think about how that might work out. Um, and actually, when they brought in some engineers to talk about this, um, because they didn't have touch dial phones yet, they only had a rotary, uh, they were talking about, they'd brainstormed this concept of the way that you wouldn't make wrong numbers is you would dial the number first and then hit a button to then dial the number um, which is not how it worked you'd always sort of live uh, dial numbers with the rotary phone this um, is so old I literally don't know what happens when you misdial on a rotary phone like is there a, an undo a delete or do you just call the wrong number and you just, just call start? yeah I guess so... you would hang up and you start over oh yeah yeah okay so um, wow, I feel, and, but, and, I and really old all of a sudden, and yet and, really young at the same and, time. And, and Akoff, who somehow found his way into this this meeting because he's not even part of Bell Labs, but um, he, you know, his whole thing differences that make a difference. He's like, well, there's different kinds of wrong numbers, and you know, da 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 da. But um, they came up with a system that seemed to eliminate wrong numbers, and they shared it with some engineers to see about feasibility. And uh, and, and as legend has it, they ran off. Uh, kind of ignoring them, and then a couple weeks later came back with a touchtone touchtone dialing. Um, but the interesting thing is through this process, um, they basically came up and brainstormed every feature that would come out of telephony uh, over the next 50 years. And so that was kind of, uh, pretty significant um, to, to see the effect of idealized designs. You actually, you know, how, how liberating it is to kind of uh, how much innovation can come out of it um, to, to focus on what you want as opposed to thinking about what you have and there's so many reasons why it's it's uh the the value in it you know not just like you know you're always going to be limited by the thinking of current problems that you're uh working with um but then the the systemic properties of when you think about the ideal properties of the system it forces you to think systemically um as opposed to the that little part of the system that you're working on yeah, it's that's one of the problems I see with brainstorming is that people are like, oh, brainstorming is a thing you do at the very beginning of a new project, and it's confined to the realms of what that new project is. And very rarely do people say, okay, let's brainstorm the future of everything we're doing. Right, because most of the time you don't know anything about that domain when you're start. You know something, but almost uh, almost 100 percent of the time you're going to be learning. Um, right. more it's like literally in the that worst process. time to brainstorm. Like right? it would be better to brainstorm later. Yeah. And so nobody really kind of takes advantage of that and comes back unless you say you find the opportunity to start over, say starting a company over. You know, imagine you know Steve Jobs leaving oh, Apple, man, so many starting companies. over next like Foursquare, Dodgeball. Yeah, all all these. And so if they would if they would have just like done this process and been able to sort of idealize, redesign, you know, and had the ability, had the uh, uh, some structure that allowed them 
to to do that. You know, it might not be necessary for these. You know, I thought that that was something that companies should do is um, try and and some of them do that have the resources, but try and like you know set up a group to to. I mean, one way to think of it is put put them out of business, like right. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this before in in an early unreleased episode, I guess, when we were talking about dissolving problems. Yep. Uh, a little bit, but um, I mean, you don't have to frame it that way. That way, you can just frame it as idealized design to give you some sort of you know interesting product roadmap. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting that I, I think the problem with really big companies is that it's not that they don't do idealized designs; they don't know how to integrate that feedback. They don't know how to actually act on it. It's so hard to sort of like turn one of these huge companies. I just I, it's, it's, it's hard enough for startups. They're, yeah, they're not, it's hard enough for like a three person team, even a one person, like even a solo project. You get halfway through it and realize the direction has to change dramatically, and it's it gets crazy. Um, so I think it's time for the something special. Do you have something special? Yeah. All right. Unless there's something else you want to cover first. We can try it. We can try it. We don't. I don't know how it's gonna work out. It's gonna be. This is totally new. Never done before. So what we wanted to do for you guys and gals is to do idolize design live on the podcast, li- live recorded, and then put online. I don't know if that's live anymore. But whatever. We're gonna systems live it. So we wanted to do idealized design, and we were we were talking work or corporations as the thing we would idealize design. See, work work really gets into that sort of life design because work, you know what I mean? Like it's, I mean, you have to set boundaries, and the reason why organizations like a corporation would be easier is because it's pretty well defined as a separate entity. Um, so I don't know. What Let's do you guys think? Does anybody uh, you want to do corporations? Yeah. Does anybody else have like? Do, would you rather us try and do? And we could. Uh, we would love your feedback in this brainstorming process, everybody that's listening. But um, of the people that are listening, would you be interested in doing this idealized redesign process for work in general or corporations? Which is sort of a. And both of these are very nebulous kind of topics, but they're. You know, it's it's one direction to go or the other. Yeah, it's interesting. Like the the really abstract idealized designs um, lead to sort of like an interesting oh, wow. expo boy. So so Daniel uh, Moore just suggested programming, <laughs> which I oh man, I want to do that one instead now. That, that all is, right, that is a that is a good suggestion. I mean, and again, you're always going to be limited by your your ability. <laughs> The people in the room, right? Oh, it's an interesting one because I feel like we both sort of had a hand in in uh, shaping programming as an act over the last I don't know ten years or so. I mean, like we both the, really the higher level things because you can get really like what are the pro- you know you could basically come up with new programming paradigms or fun- you know fundamentals of, of computation. Those are there's it's really that whole stack and you know, people joke about full stack being you know physics and you know. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. So something that high level, it would be interesting to see where we go, what, what we focus on. But I'm down for that. All right, let's do it. So, I mean, a lot of uh, idealized design starts out with, surprise, um, talking about the existing problems um, so that you can kind of get them down and then, real, you know, just so you kind of know what they are. It's sort of that whole, like, 
diagnosis process. It's like, what what are your pain points? You know, yeah. just so you have something to work with, and then afterwards you can imagine if you were to start over, what would it be? Um, so we could start like that. Yeah. I, I mean, there's there's obviously much more in depth stuff. If there's a systemic analysis of of what's going on, but I don't think we have time for that. Yeah, let's, let's shoot for doing this, like, let's say 20 minutes or so, tops. So let's say um, first five or ten minutes that we kind of talk about some of our pain points yeah. in programming. Yeah, yeah and, and if people... Try. <laughs> um, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll try and write, write down as many as possible, but if anybody else wants to participate, feel free to just throw stuff into the chat. Um, so uh, pain points... We were just talking about um, cross-platform. Cross yeah, cross-platform. It's interesting because it's like semi-solved right now, but um, specifically for like stuff that pushes the the boundaries of media, like games, it's still really really hard. Um, there's this. I'm trying to think of uh, debugging is is a general pain point, right? Debugging is a general pain point, and like it's not considered programming, which is weird, but it is. Like, it clearly well, is. at the same time, some people think that is programming. Yeah, Oof. The measure like, is, of my isn't it though? It, imagine like, my work output by minute. It's for sure like seventy percent. Um, uh, I don't want. I don't know. Maybe this will inspire other, more specific things, but tooling. Yeah, tooling. Interesting one. I'm trying to think of problems. Um, I think of simplicity as a, as a problem. It's hard to make things simple. Um, there's politics. Um, I pointed this out before. A lot of software is politics, especially in open source when you're depending on libraries and stuff like that. Yeah, I would I would go I would say social like, like politics social programming is fundamentally social. You yeah. you write code to either share the finished product or you write code to share the code, and either way, like you know, almost no one writes software. Testing. Person. David Reed says testing. Yeah, I, I hesitated whether to say that as a problem or if to save it for a solution. Like it's it's a weird one though. Like. Like I would, I would at this point say testing is a fundamental part of programming, but that that still seems like an opinion. Well, I mean, there's so many different ways to go, right? There's, um, I mean, testing can mean so many things, right? There's acceptance testing, um, or just like that general idea of does this meet requirements? Um, yeah, Daniel says education um, and training, and I would say in addition to that sort of learnability and usability, like balancing the difficulty curve of learning to program versus uh, like the expert systems, how 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 good are you when you're actually at the, the plateau or the peak? So there is this huge uh, difference between like a, a novice programmer or, or a poor programmer and a, and a good programmer. There's that whole like 10x meme, right? Um, is there any way to yeah, so I guess that's that's kind of the education. Hamming was talking about that. All right, what else? Have we done a show on education yet? Mm-hmm. Formal verification. <laughs> <laughs> David Reed says Python 3, um, to which I reply Python 2.7. Um, that's kind of a problem is is when your when your platform changes or like change just change, change. like just it's change. the whole ball of problems 
Um, and, and like change and social are interrelated in a really tight sort of feedback loop. So um, change, but versions and yeah, especially for, especially for platforms. Um, but you know, it's anything like your own code or third party code. Yeah, I, f- I feel like a lot of my insights into programming have, comes back to the dependence. Have come from looking at it as code base over time instead of code. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of open source and, and new language proposals and people talking about language, they talk about here's a concrete example of code and then here's how I can make it better. And I'm way more interested in like here's a code base and here's how it's going to get better over time, which, which are like unrelated. Over time, better over time. Uh, refactoring. It kind of touches on the, the you know, s- simplicity, uh, but also like the the learning uh, over you know code over time, uh, learning about the domain. It's fun to look at law as like a really old programming language that is crappy and it's like the Fortran of of our era, and it has all the same problems. Legacy. Yeah. How do we deal with legacy? How long has it been? <laughs> <laughs> Not long enough. Wait, we still got a bunch more problems, don't we? Yeah. There's plenty of problems. It's weird it's weird that programming is thought of as such a solo activity and see you in front of a computer and while it's social at exactly the same time. So there's, like- there's a lot of uh process I feel like the physicality of it, typing into a screen, is even maybe a problem. Uh, yeah, how... Typing. Um, there's culture, associated... Oh, there's so much more... Like, like, a lot of good programming has to do with the process and culture around it, right? But yeah, how it's done. Um, it kind of ties into the the tooling. We can get to some of this stuff in the uh, brainstorming part. Um, Backwards compatibility, David lists. Daniel says auto-generating code tests app data. Um, auto-generation's weird. Metaprogramming is weird. The delineation between language and code is also weird. You know, we have lists where you're writing DSLs all the time, and you have other languages where language is predetermined. Code is very fluid. I was thinking about the data being kind of a that's especially when you're. I mean, there's there, there's programming in like the process of programming and writing code, but there is all these other things of building systems, right? And so maybe that's part of part of this is like more. Mm, I don't know. Think about either operations or thinking about um, you know de- de- the deployment. You know, if it's software that you ship, thinking about what happens in the real world comes back to cross-platform. What happens when your code is out there, right, and you have no control over it? Okay, we've got you've got a page full of problems. Okay. So wait, can I do the speech now? Last night. Programming was destroyed. <laughs> hmm. 
Hmm. So now we need to rebuild programming. So what's interesting is is if we really wanted to, we'd have the entirety of programmers at our dispatch. Like like redesigning programming is one of those things where like, oh, it takes fifty years, fifty fifty uh, person years to build that. Great, whatever. Like open source can solve that. It's not a problem. I mean, I, no, it's hard to get out of this problem thinking, but I was it made me think of that's that's really change. Um, so what do we what do we want to build first? Like first first comes a language. We we sort of need we need programming languages. Is it ideal to have more than one programming language? Like we we sort of have like a, a I don't know. You could apply economics to it. So I I almost want to say it's like a capitalist approach to programming languages. Like their usage dictates attention, which roughly dictates how much uh, improvement they get. Yeah, I mean, I, I always like the the idea of, uh, I mean, this is a, a an Alan Kay thing, but um, if you want concise, simple expressibility, it takes a domain-specific language to achieve that. Um, and, you know, he has, I don't remember the name of the project, but where he was, they were designing an entire operating system um, that was, for each problem domain, it had its own language to, to write that uh, system. And so through that, he was able to build an operating system that was much more concise and much simpler. Um, My favorite wise. example from that is um, so if you've ever tried to implement TCP or anything similar to it, you have to look up the RFC and there's a bunch of state flow diagrams because it's a state machine. And so he wrote a DSL. I don't know if it was him or someone on the project wrote a DSL that actually parsed the ASCII state diagram from the RFC for TCP and then used that. So they actually just like wrote a DSL and then copy paste the RFC in as code. Like that's really, really interesting. Yeah. I was gonna say, so first thing is it sounds like it's a good idea to have multiple languages. Um, yeah. because of the ability to write domain specific languages, but also to think in different ways, right? Right. So assuming that, that we're we're going to have languages and languages will change, then that's like one of the many forms of change that we think are are sort of inherent to the ideal system. Yeah. Because I think, I think change is sort of an important unifier here. Of all the different things changing, hardware is always going to change. Like Moore's Law is not changing. That is uh, going to be a part of the ideal system. It's, it's one of the physical sort of limitations of the, the environment. Platforms are changing. I feel like, I feel like um, the apps that people are writing today will be thrown away in five years as a general rule because computers like desktop computers laptop computers might still look the same but like people are moving mobile and tablet something else next so like we're 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 sort of doomed to repeat ourselves a lot in the future so if we kind of assume that i mean a lot of people say that every 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 bit of code you're going to write is going to be thrown away but at the same time or is rewritten or something right um but strangely you also have things where like software systems that are still run in production, right? It's like both both are true. It's like this code... So so write code that you assume is going to be, uh, you know, deleted or removed, but also that it could live forever. Yeah, my aunt... Uh, minor digression. My aunt was a programmer, 
and uh, and when I when I met her, um, like she married into the family when I was maybe twelve or thirteen. I told her like, "Oh, you're a programmer. I want to be a programmer too." And she was like, "Oh, I'm so sorry," because <laughs> she had spent like literally thirty years straight writing nothing but COBOL, doing nothing but the same like sort of database crud in COBOL over and over again. But yeah, it's like a perfect example of. There's software out there where people like companies will just keep paying the same people to do the same thing over and over and over again forever. Now she's a nurse and loves it. So there's a happy ending there. Doing the same thing over and over. So in an ideal world, when a problem is is solved, uh, I mean you have d- duplication of efforts and abstractions and stuff like that. And people come up with good abstractions and bad abstractions, um, but very often people replicate. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, my personal experience with um, Twisted, which is async IO networking, so many times that pattern has been reproduced in Python or in other languages, and its learnings are completely lost. People make the same class of mistake over and over and over again. So there, there is this, um, you know, if there are different languages, it would be nice if you could encapsulate a pattern in a way that was cross-languages. Yeah, I mean, like, like the, the JVM and the .NET framework are, like, one interesting take on a solution to that problem. Um, but this, this like, yeah, if, if we agree that inner language is going to be common, um, like... There why? needs to be a way to share across languages. Yeah, so right now that's the C API, and that's so shitty. Mm-hmm. Like, why do we not have a better binary ABI that supports I don't know objects interfaces like com there's some options there and they're all terrible but I don't I don't know that they're inherently terrible I'm so focused on the the realities today all I'm doing well I mean every time it's kind of think about well what what are we what is what is the nice things about what we have potential things what are you know and then so debugging is one thing we're talking about. Well, seventy percent of our time is debugging, uh, and I think uh, somebody, maybe Brett Victor, probably brought it up. The fact that um, we have our, our debugging tools are like fifty years old; they haven't changed. Like our methods and processes for debugging have not fundamentally changed. Yeah, it, that bothers me with like reverse debugging, and there are options out there that are just giant leaps forward in terms of debugging and. Like, I don't know if, if we're collectively making a bad investment decision by saying, oh, that's too hard to set up. I'm not going to do it. Because it's like, it's like every time you want to install a debugging tool, you have to rationalize it for the thing you're chasing down today, which seems incredibly short-sighted. Um, and this, this also comes back to my idea of, like, I actually really like systems that are wholly contained and sort of the pieces know about each other and are optimized, even though sometimes that means, like, buying into the... Microsoft serfdom or Google oh, yeah. serfdom. Um, so, like having the debugging tools just be a thing that everyone knows how to use. So, I mean, um, if there was a way, so if nice. there was a way to do this cross-language problem uh, or, or solution encapsulation, if there's some way to share across languages, if those debugging tools or, or mechanisms, um, I mean, those seem kind of related, right? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely there's definitely some interesting intersection there. Because um, when you look at when you look at a pro- let's look at a so programming stack real quickly. Right now, a programming right. stack is like what IDE, what operating system, what programming language, what frameworks, what tools those seem like the big decisions. Am I missing anything? Um, oh, what uh, what 
social, what source control. Um, so with those sort of like six things, you, you get a stack. And then like if you, you start to talk about bigger things, then like you go from what frameworks to like what database engine, how you how you splitting across multiple computers. So there is like this concept of a, a stack. It would be nice to be aware of it, to, to formally kind of reason about stacks. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. You you tell people advice, and like their stack is different, and then that advice is not applicable mm-hmm. for whatever reason. But they've gone off and gotten the wrong idea, or disagree, or think you're stupid, or something. So it would be, I don't know what the solution would be, but some some way to to sort of uh, programmatically, as well as describe, well, probably programmatically, being able to describe stacks in a way that is. Yeah, we, we sort of understand some of the slots and like things that could fit into those slots and have a generic. So stack. it's almost like we need some sort of general model of programming. <laughs> you know, like if we were to, if, you know how you, you model systems and you can write systems in software once you've, you know, modeled it and you create them, you know, whatever. I don't know, you describe it, but. You know what I'm talking about. You create a mental model of a system, and you can represent the system in software and code. If we had a uh, a model of programming that was then modeled in in source code, that that could be interesting. I don't know where we'd go with that, but it'd be interesting to to have that model. It would, yeah, um, yeah. I did. I've done a little. Um, you're using one term of the word model. I don't know if mine's different, but I did a little modeling for um, like checking hypotheses of of how programming systems work. So I, I wrote like you know a person object and a and a, a change object and and had a simulation. And, and my my goal originally for writing it was to show sort of edge case failures of the deploy pipeline at Inview, um, namely that if like if the failure rate ratchets up 5%, that actually causes like the uh, ability to get your changes out to just go to nothing. Like like the, the minor changes in that one percentage lead to giant changes over there. But it's really interesting if you played with the numbers even a little, you got wildly different answers. Um, and that, that sort of modeling is really interesting to me. And then how much of that you could actually apply to the real world and be like, oh, can we simulate people? Can we talk about it that way? I don't know. Well, there's this the idea of of measure of of measurement and metrics, right? We talk about that a lot, and how how inapplicable it seems to be to programming. Like, what what metrics do you actually use on a regular basis? The ones that I see are like uh, code coverage and tests, which I don't like because it's usually misleading. Um, if it's zero percent, then you have a problem. If it's ninety percent, then probably it's not a useful number anyway. Um, and like cyclomatic complexity, lines of code, those those measurements, they're like they're interesting at a glance, and then not actually interesting if you try and observe them over time. And, and well, it seems like all the interesting metrics are based on behavior of people relating to that code, relating to that system, right? Like how many times you deploy in a day, right? That's an interesting metric. Well, it sort of depends. Like, are you talking about health of a code base or are you talking about health of an engineering process or something like that? So you might, um, you know, I mean, at, at MVU we measured, um, like, current status of the build, green or red, and commits per day and deploys per day and 
um, cycle time, like time between intent to commit or commit and time deployed. Um, and all those were interesting, but we had to only use them in really narrow purviews to, to avoid gamifying and, and mm-hmm. leading to short-circuit evaluation of priorities. It's kind of fascinating how almost every other field has tons of metrics and science around it, and then we have so little in terms of, of software as a social and human science and not as a not computer science, which is focused on what can computers do. Well, I mean, there, I mean, there's this whole kind of problem with, with programming this sort of... Um, the, the language expressibility issues, you know, the fact that, um, like Hamming was saying, is it's it's more like novel writing than engineering. You have two people to tell them to solve a problem. Programming, they might both solve it, but they'll do it in completely different ways. And so that means that it's very hard to actually measure things about it. It's like, how can you measure... What what are the what are the uh, what are the metrics in in novel writing? You know that you could have. Yeah, that one's. I mean, they they do pages and words per day. That's an interesting one. It's very lines of code, and it totally ignores the editing process, which is, from what I understand, probably more important and longer than writing in the first place. I mean, I always thought lines of code was an interesting uh, metric in terms of how how small can you get it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, um, but you know, again, balanced with other things, like it needs, it still can't be like super clever and doing like in, in, insanely unreadable and un- understandable things. But, right. So Ruby. <laughs> but or you know, or you know, like I don't know, whatever <laughs> these silly languages that let you express things in totally odd odd ways. But um, it's it's interesting that. Given given that you're uh, you're doing okay with certain metrics, that your line count is actually very low, that that's a good thing. Um, well, and practically, you did stuff with uh, Doku. You try to keep it under 100 lines of bash. Yeah, which is that that's an interesting one. Like saying we can only we can only afford it to be this long. Anything I, long I, I think that's that's like not necessarily a, a good answer, but yeah, it's an interesting. It's, yeah, oh, I didn't yeah. say it was a good yeah. one. Just that it was interesting. Um, but yeah, that's the simplicity of it. So trying to find ways to build simplicity into the system. And one one thing, I mean, how can we how can we build a, a tooling or a way of thinking about programming that is uh, one that, for example, encourages idealized redesign or continuous idealized redesign? Yeah, that sort of that side of the problems of programming is interesting. People think of programming as typing code into a computer. But it's it's barely that at all. It's talking to other people about the design of the system. It's debugging. It's picking a direction. It's figuring out how to get from point A to point B um, without you know breaking things on the way there. Yeah, the hard problems are not actually programming, <laughs> or, or you know what you what programming technically is. You know, it's not the hard part of it. Yeah, other than other than like concurrency and performance, almost nothing that's hard is is in the programming. It's in the social and the surrounding environment. This is a really, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we were exploring this one, but this is a really hard one to. All things are hard, so yeah. I'm trying to think about 
uh, debugging and, and thinking about things like that, you know, for example, Brett Victor talks about is having a real-time connection. His whole way of thinking, you know, that programming is broken in the sense that you have to go from one mode where you model the entire system in your head as you're writing and changing code, and then you actually run it, right, to actually see the, the process. Um, yeah. And you know how people will try it as much as possible, for example, write uh, tests that will run as they're writing code. So there is there I think there is something there that would be useful in, in trying to decrease um, Right, well here's here's a here's a concrete suggestion. What if we wrote a programming language where the toolchain wouldn't let you do anything unless you wrote a failing test first? So a programming language that at the language and tooling level required you do test TDD. So every line of code ever written in it has a test for it, or not every line, but every line written has to have test coverage. So then you never need to worry about like, is it does a third party library have test coverage? Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it sort of removes a bunch of questions, but it also is pretty heavy handed. There's 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 a lot of I mean that's that's interesting. It'd be really great if there was a system that integrate basically if the compiler or the I mean you you kind of have this where it's all, where you have systems that are constantly running the tests. Um, and basically, in, in a way, a lot of people are setting up their ideal programming environment by putting all these tools together. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Like some people create something that'll watch the file system and rerun the tests when something changes or whatever, or recompile and, and do whatever. I can't believe we didn't say deployment. Oh, well. well, I mean, that's I did put. De- I, oh, did we? Did I just forgot. But yeah, I mean, when when people ask me about continuous deployment, I'm like, the ideal design, which I've prototyped, is. Every time you press a character, run the tests. If the test passes, deploy. That's it. And, and then deploy is not a thing you ever think about. It's a side effect. Um, man, it's, if you have a lot of people working on something, see that? Uh, yeah, that's, that's another interesting one. Like at, at some point, the diff is more important than the static tree of code. Like, like you... You stop reading systems and you start reading diffs. You stop looking at architecture and you start looking at change over time of architecture. And I don't see any programming languages focusing on that. I want to see a programming language where you can write the diff as code. So I want to instead of instead of the diff being like a bunch of name refactorings, the diff would be one line which says call refactor function rename blah blah blah, and then you have this like higher level. Metaprogramming language. So your your changes are actually you, you have a, a language for describing changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the the nice side effect of that is that you can start to reorder change sets and merge things seamlessly because you have all this extra information about what that change is, and that that dramatically reduces the social problem, which is I would say a bigger problem than the what's the code look like today. I mean, wouldn't all your writing be in this language? Um... Like even the first time you write something. Yeah, that's 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 the. I want to write this language and prototype in it because I don't really know how it would work. But yes, like you theoretically, you would start with an empty slate, and every change to it would be written in this programming language. I just don't know. Like when you're writing a function for the first time, aren't you just going to dump that function into the the change file? And maybe that's fine. I don't know. Um, but it's sort of it's sort of like reorient around change and social because change and social are bigger problems than programming. And I don't know if that's true. But I, I, I feel that way. Like that seems like it could be true. 
Are there any other problems here that we could like elevate to primary status and redesign around? I think it jumps out. Uh, I mean, there's there's plenty of problems here that we could kind of go go after and think about. Daniel's is differential calculus. I totally think of that sometimes. Like like if you want to know if you want to predict the future, look at the differential of of how the thing is changing, and then focus on that and and focus on applying that in your head a bunch of times. Iterate on it out. How how could we get people? Why well, so? Random thought. Um, coming to this idea of like education and improving people's abilities one one of the great ways to write better code is to read more code mm-hmm. um, so how how could we encourage people to read more code yeah um, that's that's another that's another fun one like we don't do that as an exercise very often well code review is I mean, it's it's going to be a, a sort of a limited set. It's going to be whatever your organization or your group is working on. But code review is is yeah, code review is valuable. Like you learn the system and you you're you're getting a little better at reading code. But I find that reading another project's code is far more important. Right. Um, I mean, the, the the times that I've learned a lot about architecture and design are when I've talked to people in wildly different fields and and heard these just like fantastic patterns. I so mean, why why don't people read? Code. Usually, it's like they don't want to sit down and like they don't think of. It doesn't really seem tough. to. It's really tough to see the patterns apart from the implementation details. Um, I, I don't fully know why that is. I mean, part of it is just like you're you're building up the high level picture from from the weeds when you read code, and that's tough and that's time consuming, but it makes you so much better. Um. What if, what if um, instead of having lots of different software projects, we had one software project, and every piece of software ever was a part of one code base? That's interesting. And then, like, oh, I want to rename this function in the kernel. Great. I just do it. It's almost like, uh, like Lisp operating systems, where basically everything is one code base. Yeah, yeah. Joel was showing, probably both of us, the gen- genera system genera yeah and, and it's so cool like you you basically just hit a button and suddenly you're looking at the code for anything you're doing and you you debug from the kernel into the application you just wrote and it's just a stack like it's it's super simple it's it's one of those like um, you describe zero MQ as like the way you think sockets worked in your head before you learned how they actually worked and to me like the everything in one language is how people think about how software and programming works until they learn more about it. Like it's 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 super weird. If you worked in a company, you'd be like, okay, everyone speaks one language in that company because language barriers are so expensive. But in programming, you're like, okay, everyone speaks fifteen different languages, mm-hmm. and then you have all of these like language barrier issues. What a surprise! Um, but it's hard to contrast that with you know diversity in language and and I mean I'm a huge fan of, of evolutionary uh, theory applied to things, and you need diversity for evolution. Like it's fundamental property there but how, how do you break down like how do you have these these communities that sort of discover things that aren't shared with other communities because there isn't a lot of overlap um or because because a lot of these programming languages uh are also communities and those communities can sometimes be their own kind of walled gardens um 
Yeah, I mean, so going back to the twisted example, like the Node people, mm-hmm. Node is twisted, but for JavaScript. Like mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that's basically what it is, and yet they remade all the same problems, and and then they solved them, you know, because they have tons of people. I'm not saying Node's bad, just. But they also came up with a lot of interesting ideas, like their whole streaming stuff is very similar to like Go's um, I/O stuff, which is, seems like a very powerful concept. And even Twisted had it with uh, streams, I think was it? Yeah, something like that. But it seems like well, there's a, a general pattern that you know everybody sort of discovered in some way or another, right? Yeah, or rediscovered in many ways. But does it take us building three really popular systems to learn that as a group? And then if we learn that as a group, will the next system take that into account or not? I can't tell. So what I mean, what if there was a way to um, that? Oh man, this is that's really hard. I'm just kind of thinking. Uh, if you could write something in one language and sort of see the implementation in other languages. Sort of like if you solve, it comes back to that cross-language encapsulation, but imagine if you solve a problem in one language and see its manifestation sort of ends up in another language. You know what I mean? Yeah, so so even related to that, so David Reed said uh, that I want GoFix as a compiler operation with user-defined fixes. I actually want GoFix to be a thing that you can specify in your in your diff. Like, how cool would that be? And like, uh, oh, you upgraded a version of Go? Great. You copy in their diffs and apply them to your code base, and then you're done. Like, you've, you've upgraded to a new version, because they'll just ship you, ship you the, the diffs that you need to apply to solve at least, you know, the 99% case. Um, that, that sort of thing. Then Go can make changes faster. So imagine that. Like, okay, we've got, we've got a language that can ship to you upgrades to the language that upgrade your code base for you. Now the language can evolve at that much of a faster pace. Because, I mean, the counterexample is the Perl and Python world where they do an idealized redesign of the language and then they build it and they miss that the reality of A to B is important. Like, like the, it's, it's kind of weird. Idealized design says ignore all of the problems of, of today, but like programming, the problems we listed are legacy code and change. And like it is like change over time is a fundamental here. Right. I and mean, this makes me think about, like, uh, Daniel talked about static analysis, but, you know, being able to model programs, if we can model programs in a general way, we can come up with ways to do things like dynamic diffs and stuff like that, and being able to programmatically come up with ways to, to come, you know, do diffs based on things that have changed, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it seems silly to me. Um, that you throw away a lot of information right now as a programmer. Um, like, I have to imagine that if every time I typed, it was recorded somewhere, and then I'd have a journal of my typing, that that would make a better diff than just the end result. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, you could go back and say, like, oh, what, what was I thinking? How did I actually make that change? And replaying that and watching it would be really useful. But oh, we wow. lose all that. And the same thing, like, if I right-click and, and click refactor, like, the... the does the refactoring, but then it forgets that it did the refactoring and the diff is It'd be now. really cool if, if um, there's, it's kind of like when you do, uh, it's, let's say you did a screencast of your, of you working on a programming pro, 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 or, or, or just, you know, like a Sabitha edit replay yep. uh, kind of thing. So it's like oh, you're yeah. always recording every change that you're doing and it's stored somewhere, not necessarily as a commit to a code base. Maybe right. it is, but or maybe it is, but it's metadata. It's not. It, it, yeah, it's metadata, so that you can always go back and see the process of the code that was written before you got to the code that was committed, and that that sort of thing. That would be really interesting, right? Yeah, I think it would be really cool to replay 
the creation of your code base and sort of look at a high level view of it that way. I don't know what that would be if it would be like a, a API. I mean, it, it's kind of like how people have done like those uh, diffs of, of code over time, just based on the uh, or watching the visualizations. Evolve. Yeah, visualizations based on the the diffs, um, but you know, having it at a, at a much tighter, you know, and also not just the the single. You know, master branch, but for every individual that's you know working on it on every so, thing. Yeah. So the um, so I'm building this course in continuous deployment uh, through Industrial Logic, and the the core thing they do is training around. Uh, I would say like sort of basics of modern programming, like refactoring and code smells and automation and testing. And their big thing is a plugin that injects itself into Eclipse that monitors and measures everything you do, and it can do things like tell you oh, you just did these TD exercises. Here's how long you were red and then how long you were green and then how long you were red and then how long you were green. And here's how it compares to other people who've done the same thing. And we think you could improve by writing more failing tests in the middle of the process and things like that. Like that level of knowledge, it's it's informational. It's not telling you like, oh, you get $10,000 less this year because you didn't refactor enough. Which is, which is everyone's fear with measuring code bases. It's only given to you, and it's only for learning. Um, that kind of stuff is really interesting. Yeah. So there's personal his- history and personal... Having that stuff built into the system. And then, and then like, anonymous... Um, oh, what's it called when you... Not baseline, but... but um, when you measure yourself against other people, your peers, to figure out if you're ahead or behind of the, the competition. Yeah, it's, computers got a weird bug where uh, I don't know I, when it started happening, but if I don't move the mouse or click, it just stops updating the screen. Interactive lab notebooks for programmers. I mean, there's been a lot of like interesting stuff. What is it, one? That Python notebook project that's for like science... science. Scientific stuff or whatever. I don't know. I, I forget what it was, and they use ZeroMQ. It's this this weird thing. I forget specifically what it's for, but uh, but it, but what's interesting is it's you know completely not in you know it's for this other. It's not integrated. If you could just like if it was always recording everything that you type, you know, and being able to collect information about that. That pops right up into our fear of data collection, though. Oh, I just keep it locally or whatever. Um. I mean, we're, I just, we obviously go on forever. Seriously, this is, this is I think this is 20 minutes longer than our longest previous podcast. Um, Loving it. But, uh, but to, kind of, to, to kind of review, to step up and get it meta, um, there are a lot of really cool ideas that, that came out of this. Things that could be explored and prototyped and stuff like that. And I feel like we didn't, we didn't even have enough time in this session. Yeah, this to, is such to... a, a huge topic. That we haven't even scratched the surface yet in this. What's interesting is in the other idealized design uh, sessions I've been in, um, we've ended up with a proposal that sort of covered a bunch of problems together, and we we couldn't even get to that. Like we 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 need to make a whole bunch of solutions and then see some commonality and and sort of aggregate and come up with a new solution. And yeah, if we had picked a smaller topic that we know less about, maybe. I mean, it, it, it could very much be that we are. Uh, too close to the problem and it's hard for us to step back and just think at a high level what do we want I know I kind of, I kind of almost want to just make this a show we'll just do idolized designer programming every week <laughs>
and hopefully we can try and detach ourselves from from the problem. I mean, really, like this in in a way, I think was maybe a bad example. <laughs> like we we is done just because it's such a hard thing, but a, a bad implementation because um we're 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 not like letting go enough. We're not thinking not too close. uh too much of like inner you know kind of more sci-fi, you know, kind of things of, of what we want. I mean, we could do a better job at that. Um, just because it's such a... But it's difficult because it's such a complicated... Almost like a, a wicked problem. Because it's social, it's, you know... I mean, yeah, we all both see stuff. just like it's, 20 different things that are problems yeah. with the current system. And solving all of them in parallel is not exactly easy. However, yeah. I, it's probably possible. It, I, I, yeah, the thing is, I think the more that people were to do this sort of thing... Um, you know, we would we would accelerate our, our overall progress um, in in making programming better. But see, the funny thing is, and this is not necessarily an organizational thing, or it's kind of more general, like cultural culture of the programmer society of programmers or whatever. But you know, we don't do this enough. Um, in the same way that organizations don't do this enough, or you know, software projects don't do this enough. Um, it's definitely definitely worth it. Yeah, I, I usually advocate to organizations that they pick a split of time between implementation and sort of research and development and investment. Um, you know, usually I'll say like 70-30. Um, and then you just stick to that forever because it's not like that ratio really needs to change. If you're, if you're benchmarking yourself against everyone else and you're better than the competition you still want to invest 30% into, into research and development and investment because you're just going to get better and faster. Like it, mm-hmm. it's, it's not like they're, um, it's not like product design where R&D and manufacturing are almost completely separate ideas. Like they're both the same thing. And the idea I have today in my research and development, I can usually apply next week to the code that I'm writing. Yeah. It, it, so more, more things about this working in the software world is, is that kind of R&D, one, depending on the problem, it can be really difficult for a small group within a bigger group to, to do this because there are a lot of social problems that come with that. Um, uh, being able to get them to communicate, you know, and, and actually sh- share that understanding that the smaller group has, you know, figured out and all that stuff. Um, so there's, I mean, I can. It is really hard to to implement this stuff, but I think people should be trying to figure out how to. If we don't know how to build it, we should at least know what direction to go in. Yeah. That's, that's sort of the theme of today's podcast. And that's that's a pretty good place to end it. We are, I think we're above an hour and a half. This is our, our biggest, I dare say best, possibly worst podcast ever. Possibly worst, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I had a lot of fun. It'd be neat if there was like a whole class of podcasts that were like this. Yeah. I mean, this is basically think tubs, <laughs> live think tubs. Yeah, but I mean, with two people, maybe maybe we'll force or two five. people and uh, and a couple other listeners that are occasionally chiming in. All uh, right, so yeah, so we're not doing another podcast next week or the week after because our travel plans do not even remotely line up. You're in Paris, I'm in Boise, Idaho. Um, so we'll be back in what three weeks on Friday the thirtieth. Yep. Two p.m. Austin time. Central. Is that noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yep. Um, 
Yeah, I, we're, we're systemslive.org. If you sign up for Mixler, you get an email, which is awesome, and then you can you can hop in. Um, I'm Timothy Fitz on Twitter, your program on Twitter. Yep. Follow us. Message us. Tell us what you like, what you didn't like, what you want to hear. We love your feedback. We love you guys. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>